Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Freeway Phantom is available each week on Wednesdays. To hear each episode ad-free and one week early, check out Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com. You're listening to Freeway Phantom, a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, Black Bar Mitzvah, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. In 1984, when I decided to reopen the cases, I was really concerned because in talking to some other detectives and other people around, they were under the impression that the cases were closed. And I knew better. I knew that, you know, there had been a massive investigation of the Green Vega guys, but the evidence eventually showed that that was a farce, that they didn't have anything to do with it. So I decided I was going to take up the banner of these cases because they should have been closed. There wasn't a real emotional toll on me. When I went to homicide, my primary reason for going to homicide was to handle all the infant deaths, the child deaths in the city, the abortion cases. And so seeing young people dead, you don't ever get used to it, but you know that's part of your job. And once you break down and cry and so forth, then you're not serving the public because your personal feelings get in the way of what you're trying to accomplish. You know, after you work so hard on a case and, and you talk to so many people, you kind of get a feeling of what types of young ladies they were. And the fact that the youngest one was 10 years of age, you know, you can imagine how they felt that somebody had abducted them off the street and there was nobody to stop it. And then the abduction sites were heavily populated places, but nobody saw anything. And it's just so hard to believe. And so, you know, I felt that, hey, if I can bring resolution to these cases, I will do it. 
I'm going to try my best to do it. But I'm also going to try to make sure, should I not be able to get a resolution in these cases, then I'm going to see that everything that was humanly possible is done to solve these cases. I owe that to the family and owe that to the girls. The homicide detectives termed the cases the little girl cases. This child was uh, laying on the side of the road. I wouldn't go no way. I wouldn't come out my house. Those first five murders should have been a huge warning bell for the police. We just want to know what happened. This person must have saw that they were thinking that maybe it's just one person. And he says, uh-uh, they need to know. This is me. I thought that they would catch him. I thought it was just a matter of time. I'm Celeste Headley, and this is Freeway Phantom. The murders of eight young black girls, six of whom were confirmed Freeway Phantom victims, were undeniably tragic. But their cases were just the beginning. In the decades since their murder, the plight of missing and murdered black girls in D.C. has only intensified. Today, it just looks a little different. But the issue of these cases not getting the proper media coverage or police attention they deserve is still too prominent. Each year, there are over 600,000 people reported missing in the United States, and close to 40% are persons of color, and that number is about 270,000 a year. That's reported missing. There are so many more individuals that are not reported missing to law enforcement or they're not added to the national crime database. These families are not speaking up, so we believe that the numbers are much larger. This is Natalie Wilson, one of the co-founders of the Black and Missing Foundation. The inspiration behind the Black and Missing Foundation is that in 2004, Tamika Houston vanished from Spartanburg, South Carolina. And that's the hometown of my sister-in-law, Derricka. And we learned how her family, you know, struggled to get media coverage, particularly national media coverage around her disappearance. So Derricka and I decided to do some research. We weren't sure if this was an issue affecting the minority community, particularly the African-American community. And most aren't young, attractive white women. In fact, most were persons of color, particularly Black or African-Americans. And they made up 30% of all persons missing and attracted almost no media coverage at all, especially nationally. So, you know, it weighed really heavy on our hearts. And Derricka and I decided, why not us? Why don't we do something about it? Because I'm in public relations or media relations, and Derricka's in law enforcement, and those are the two critical professions needed to bring awareness to our missing. And that's how the organization, the Black and Missing Foundation, was created. We said, you know, if we can just bring one person home or provide closure for one family, we have done our job. And now we're motivated to keep going because 40% of all persons missing are of color. And these families rely on us. We are their last resort. By the time they get to us, they're desperate. They don't know what to do. And many times they're not getting the assistance from law enforcement or the media to help find their missing loved one. 
Natalie says one of their core objectives is getting the media involved whenever there's a new missing persons case. Media coverage is very important, especially intense early media coverage. It ensures that the community is looking for that missing individual and it increases the chance of a recovery. And for us throughout the years, because we started this organization in 2008, I've been able to build media partnerships with Black press so that, again, they're using their platforms with millions or hundreds of thousands of followers to help us get the word out about a missing individual. So it's vital, and we believe that media coverage should be equal across the board. We asked Natalie why, historically, the media is so hesitant to report on these cases. Well, there are a number of reasons for the lack of media coverage. One is we're realizing that when a child is reported missing, oftentimes law enforcement, they classify the child as a runaway. So they do not receive any type of media coverage or especially the Amber Alert at all. And that is not necessarily the case. We have so many um, cases of missing children where law enforcement classified them as a runaway and they did not leave voluntarily. So we need to stay away from that phrase as runaway because ultimately, even if the child left home voluntarily, what are they leaving from? And ultimately, what are they running to? We know that children who leave home voluntarily, they're on the street. Within 24 to 48 hours, they are propositioned for sex because they have to find a way to survive. And they have to find a way for, you know, housing, food, security. And these predators, you know, they get them into a lifestyle that they cannot get out of. We also need to change the narrative that missing black and brown individuals are most likely involved with some type of criminal activity and they're represented as such in the news cycle. You know, we have to realize that these missing individuals, they have names and they are a important part of our society, our community. Their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, their grandparents. And we need to make sure that we represent them in the best light. Natalie says the issue has become much more complex than it was during the time of the Freeway Phantom. But she says there are things we can do now. You know, many of our cases, it highlights the significant racial injustices, you know, not just in policing, but media. So we need to make sure that we vote and that there are laws to protect our children. You know, Maryland has a safe harbor law where if an underage child has been arrested for prostitution, that they're not thrown into jail. They are then taken to a safe house where they're given the resources to be rehabilitated. So we need to see laws like this that protect our community. And there also needs to be laws where there's a sense of urgency and a sense of fairness when a person 
is reported missing. So again, there's a loophole with, you know, the Amber Alert. So if you're classified as a runaway, you do not receive the Amber Alert or any type of media coverage. How do we close that gap? We need to really take a look at it to ensure that the individual who did not voluntarily leave home gets the right classification when they're reported missing. Natalie told us about one case that highlights the problems evident in the current system. It was a story of a girl named Relisha Rudd who went missing in 2014. She and her family were evicted from their apartment in D.C. and they moved to the D.C. General Homeless Shelter. And Relisha was one of 600 children living at the shelter. And we became involved with Relisha's case as one of our then board members. And she was the um, assistant chief of police, Diane Grooms, shared the news release issued by MPD on March the 20th about Relisha's disappearance. Relisha was last spotted on a hotel security camera, accompanied by a man named Khalil Tatum a friend of Relisha's mother. A few weeks later, Tatum's wife was found shot dead in a hotel. And after that, Tatum's body was found in a shed, dead from an apparent suicide. Relisha was never found. We were very alarmed, but we were very determined to find Relisha. And there are so many unanswered questions about this case. And the most disheartening is that No one was really keeping up with Relisha's whereabouts. You know, not her family, not the shelter, not the school. So there is enough blame to go around for everyone. And we believe that, you know, African-American and Hispanic children, they deserve the same innocence as other children. So it's definitely a case that weighs heavy on our hearts. And when someone finds out that I'm, you know, one of the co-founders of the Black and Missing Foundation in the D.C. area, the first case they always ask us about is Relisha. What happened to her? We believe that she was a victim of sex trafficking. And the janitor whom her mother gave supervision over her was grooming her for sex trafficking. It's just so heartbreaking, but we will never stop searching for Relisha. We hold on to hope that she's alive and that she can be reunited. So much love in the D.C. area for her. One of the people working in the Relisha Rudd case all these years is Henderson Long, who we met last episode. Henderson is the CEO of D.C.'s Missing Voice. He essentially acts as a go-between for D.C.'s Metropolitan Police and the Black community. Henderson says that in many cases of missing and murdered children, someone in the community knows something. So you have to get out there and talk to folks. Kayon Jones, you know, the two-month-old. Two yes. And I know y'all know about the, the homicide and this that is occurred. The lady from Saturday. Henderson invited us to one outreach event at a 7-Eleven in Southeast D.C., he was there handing out flyers with missing persons information about Relisha Rudd. The, the goal today is to create greater awareness about, you know, the tragic circumstances of all our children in the District of Columbia. Relisha Rudd, her day being a platform, 
I was going to read the proclamation and show you the proclamation that the mayor signed regarding Relisha Rudd Day. Like the Freeway Phantom victims, Relisha's case did not receive sufficient media coverage. For the first three weeks that she was missing, there was no mainstream media outlet covering the story at all. This was also due to the fact that no one, including police, considered her a missing person. But after she was officially reported missing, people like Henderson Long were able to get the media involved. Well, y'all, on July 11th, that was the big media push. You know, everybody's not on social media. So um, my goal was to take Relisha Rudd's plight and all the plight of all our children and missing persons to the street, because you never know what you're going to run into. Uh, we may run into some information that's usable to help us close the case um, and bring some closure to some families and make the district a little safer, you know, as our part. Um, I, I approach this work with the understanding that the police can't do it alone, that we both need each other, and, and the community is a tremendous asset to the police department when they can get these tips in. I heard Chief Conte yesterday begging people to call me. I'm Send the rest in pieces up. I need phone calls. I need people to call in and give me some tips. I, mean, I appreciate the flowers, the cards, the this, that, and the other, but we need calls. We need people to call in. We need information. And in the community, they know who's committing these crimes. These crimes, anything that involves criminal malice, um, they know who's doing it. And we need the police to handle that type of stuff. Uh, when it's anything of a criminal nature, you need them to be involved. Henderson says, there are certain invaluable pieces of info you need when investigating one of these cases. You need an up-to-date photo, a complete physical description, and, if possible, fingerprints. Fingerprints is heavy in terms of identification. You need positively ID somebody who it is, because sometimes you'll find someone, you'll locate someone, somebody will come upon them. They may be incapacitated, they may even be deceased. We can roll those fingerprints, and if they had any prior run-ins, you know, y'all know the deal, you pull them right up. So fingerprints are invaluable. Henderson says the biggest goal of these outreach events is to build relationships between the community and the police. That's why there were a handful of officers there, unarmed, handing out flyers. We try to educate people on what MPD, within their uh, general orders, what kind of what they expect. Because some people come to the thing with the wrong expectation. So we get out into the elementary schools, we get out into daycare centers, we fingerprint children, we educate the parents on what to do. A lot of parents don't know to, uh, to call the police. And then, you know, you got the street code out there too. Don't deal with the police. So we try to deal with some of that by um, fostering relations with the police, showing people that, hey, look, the police are not all what you think it is. 98% of them are good people, and they're out here, they're trying to do their job, so. Henderson says the case of Relisha Rudd is a prime example of what can happen when communities like this remain relatively closed off. Over the last nine years, there's been little movement on the case, but Henderson is convinced someone knows something. By reminding people about Relisha, he says he's hoping to prevent cases like hers in the future. This is an age progression photo of what Relisha Rudd would look like today. That's her age progression photo. This is what they think she would look like, I think, at age 15. And as I said, when I talked to the media, a murder, suicide, and deception attached to a child, eight-year-old child named 
that's totally unacceptable. Murder, lies, and suicide, that's the, the worst you can get for a child. See, when Relisha Rudd, they're totally dependent on us. She's totally dependent on people around her. You know, kids are totally dependent on us. They have no other choice but to, to um, trust the people that they under their care. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. One of the people we met at the outreach event for Relisha Rudd was MPD Commander Pamela Wheeler-Taylor. She was there helping Henderson hand out flyers. And after the event, we had a number of questions about how her unit investigates these types of cases. Commander Wheeler-Taylor agreed to sit down with us. Hello, everyone. I am Commander Pamela Wheeler-Taylor of the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. I'm the commander of the Youth and Family Services Division. I've been a member of the Metropolitan Police Department for approximately 31 years. And uh, my experience runs the gamut from patrol to um, internal affairs to human resources. And now, like I said, I ha actually happen to have been uh, appointed to the rank of commander in January of 2021. So... Obviously, the case that we're focusing on was 50 years ago, and we were surprised at how sort of blasé law enforcement was when these children went missing. So I wondered if you would first walk us through today, what happens if I call you and say, my child is was supposed to be home at three, she's not home, what happens? Typically, what happens, and, and in cases such as that, the, the response of the very first responding officers of utmost importance. That's where you gather the most critical information. Things that are said in the heat of the moment are things that have to be memorialized because they could actually, you know, bring about um, successful closure at the end. Little things that you feel might not like, be important. Um, something as simple as my kid said, 
they were going to visit their friend and I told them that they couldn't go. Or something as simple as maybe you've taken the kid to a location. The kid may say, you know, I, you know, I'd awfully, I want to visit that again. You may not think because it's in the back of your, your mind that you've never taken the kid to that place or you're not going to take the kid again, but it's something you have to listen to, things that are spontaneously uttered. You know, they have uh, valuable uh, evidence. At what point then do you know does the case become more serious? At what point sort of does an officer feel that there is a need to, that it's no longer become of where could this kid have gone as opposed to maybe something untoward happened to this kid? Okay, so generally what happens, and let me back up a bit and maybe just explain to you what a missing person definition is in the District of Columbia. Missing person is anyone, um, uh, adult or child, that is missing from their lawful place of abode within the District of Columbia, and they their missing is unusual, highly unusual or for their patterns or things that they normally, their routine, things of that nature. Or the missing person could be missing from another jurisdiction close to the district, but there's reason to believe there's incredible knowledge that the individual was last seen in the District of Columbia. So, again, the reporting person and initial responder are critical in determining the circumstances surrounding the missing person's disappearance. The first step, again, is to interview the reporting person, try to gather as much information as you possibly can as far as demographics, um, available friends, a clothing description. What is definitely invaluable to us is a recent photo. If you have a recent photo of the individual, um, it's very valuable in the issuance of a missing person's flyer, which we distribute in every case. So, I mean, obviously you were not around in the 1970s. Well, you weren't a police officer in I the 1970s. I was not a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> but your career spans three decades. Yes, it does. So this is another thing that keeps coming up to us is how differently, even based on our very small knowledge of mm -hmm. police procedure, how differently cases were handled back then as to now. And I'm wondering if you could give us a kind of a concept of how not just technology, but resources have changed even since when you first started. I um, mean, how much better equipped our officers to do this kind of work? Absolutely, absolutely. And just like in anything in life, of course, technology brings about improvements in things. We have the ability to be able to now actually track cell phones. These cell phones are invaluable, and you'll see that Every juvenile has a cell phone in his or her hand. Once the missing persons detectives get on the scene, first thing we're able to do is be able to track that cell phone. And like I said... How quickly can that happen? Very quickly. Very quickly. It's a matter of us uh, forwarding an emergency disclosure request. Social media also. We can develop an IP address for where that phone is actually pinging. That has proven invaluable, and I, that's something that we definitely did not have. It gives us a leg up on a possible location of the individual, if we're lucky enough to have a case where a cell phone is involved. So definitely technology, even with fingerprinting, even with, um, you know, like I said, just being able to transmit a photo, transmit a photo through a cell phone. The expediency of the information that we receive gives us a leg up on our search for the individual. And there's more cameras around. Definitely. CCTV cameras, again, like I said, just social media in and of itself, just invaluable. What about the importance of just community members who, who live in that neighborhood, who see these kids perhaps every day? Mm -hmm. How important are they in the whole investigation of a child's disappearance? Very valuable. And that's one of the first things as the first responding unit. We go around and we call it door knocks. 
old good old fashioned boots on the ground door knocks. You're knocking on the neighbor's doors. And a lot of times the neighbors have information. Well, yes, I saw little Johnny head that way. Or yes, little Johnny hangs with my friend, you know, and they hang at the park up the street. The community is at the root of the missing persons investigations. Getting their collaboration and cooperation with us is invaluable. They are actually uh, paramount in solving the cases. Which requires that they trust the police. Trust is imminent. It, it, it absolutely is something that we cannot do our job without. You have to have the trust of the community. I mean, I think people maybe underestimate this particular piece because we were out getting gathering tape in a couple mm-hmm. neighborhoods yesterday and people had their eyes on us. Like yeah. there were over a dozen people watching us, especially. <laughs> yeah, because people know what's specific to their area, to their neighborhood. And people are, you know, cultish of their neighborhood. I know. So don't believe just because things are not said, don't believe that you're not viewed. Like you said, a prime example is of them being aware of their surroundings in their neighborhoods. So when we're talking about the requiring the trust of communities and how important that can be in locating, especially mm-hmm. a missing child, does that mean it's maybe harder right now when trust of the police is in many areas? Is, is that a is that a low? You know, I have not found that to be a deterrent. When you're talking about a missing kid, folks have a tendency to be able to look on the other side of things. They'll see that we're there for the good. So I have not, in my personal experience, have not, and I've never heard of any of my officers complain about the neighborhood not talking. They have a tendency, again, I don't know whether it's part of the, the, the code, you know, but anytime a, a senior or a juvenile is involved, I have not experienced any type of... Um, not wanting to be, get involved in in the process. And I'm sure you're aware, and we keep hearing it over and over, this impression that Black communities are a lower priority for law enforcement than white communities are. And so what is your response to, say, Black residents who believe that their, their crises, their children, are of lower priority? I'd have to stand on the laurels of Police Chief Robert J. Conti in that We investigate all of our cases the same. We have a standardized procedure. There's no one case that is given a higher priority than another case. Now, in the media, you may see that, which we don't have control over. But we investigate every last one of our cases the same. No one case has any priority over the other. So I would consistently tell the residents, I would explain to them, being transparent, this is what we do in every case. And I would give them a highlight of each investigative step that we've taken. So what advice do you give to somebody? Let's say that my son is expected home at 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. and it's 5.30 and I'm worried. Yes. What recommendation do you have for me? Short of that, given in the District of Columbia, and that's a common misperception as well, that you'll hear folks say, well, he has to be missing for 24 hours yeah. or there's a certain time period. There is no time period for you to be able to report your loved one missing. It's based more on what is unusual for that person's situation. If your kid is missing 15 minutes and you know that that's unusual for your kid, you immediately pick up the phone and call the police. What we're seeing now is that that gap in time from disappearance to reporting actually puts us you know, behind, especially in cases of elderly folks and with uh, juveniles, maybe under the age of 12. It actually puts us behind. So there's no time limit. As soon as you feel that something is unusual about your kid's disappearance, call the police. Back at the outreach event for Relisha Rudd, a prayer was delivered by Shantis Cotton. We all have a destiny. We all have a purpose. And you just have to let the Lord continue to um, work in you all of the gifts and talents that he's placed on the inside of you for his glory. That you can get anywhere, you can be anywhere, you can do anything 
that you have uh, been allowed to do because God has purpose and a reason for you to be on this earth. And so I just encourage people just to know that God has a reason for them and that he has allowed uh, the gifts and talents that he's placed on the inside of them to come into fruition and to manifestation, to use them wherever they are and to give them wherever they need to be in life so they can make it. Amen. Yes, they can make it. Yes, they can. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or... Check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. In learning about the cases that Henderson Long works on today, it was striking to me how many of the same barriers exist now that existed 50 years ago. Young black girls are still at a higher risk of victimization and their disappearances get little or no attention. Commander Wheeler Taylor says all cases are investigated the same and she doesn't find a lack of trust in law enforcement to impact cases of missing youth, but she says Henderson helps break down the barrier between law enforcement and the black community. Today, we have so many resources for solving these kinds of cases. Better technology, social media, a much better understanding of DNA and forensic evidence. We've also got people like Henderson Long working in the community to try and make a difference. But the fact that Henderson's work is still so needed in 2023 is a sign of failure, on one level at least. There's a problem that has been with us since the 1970s, and it's that police have still not earned the trust of Black communities in many of these neighborhoods. And as we've learned, painfully, that piece, it's just crucial when you want to solve these cases. It's very likely that somebody in the community knows what happened or knows something significant. And for the freeway phantom cases, their testimony may be all that we have left. I think when it comes to the physical evidence, what was left has been exhausted. So we probably will not be able to do anything with DNA, not for the physical evidence. This is retired MPD detective Romaine Jenkins. 
what I'm hoping is that by keeping the cases in the public's view, that maybe somebody, it'll jog somebody's memory that, you know, something that they never told anybody. They came across some typing books, you know, that they found when they cleaned out an apartment or one of their younger cousins brought some typing books home or some property that didn't belong to them, some property that had the name Brenda Woodard on it. And this is what I'm hoping that somebody's memory will be jogged. Romaine says that's why the work of Henderson Long is so important. Well, you always need someone who trusts the police. If you're going to be an investigator and you don't have someone who's going to give you information on what's going on in the community, then you're wasting your time. If you always have to pay for information, I think one time in my whole career did I ever pay for any information. You give me the information because you want to be a good citizen. You've given me the information because you know I'm not going to divulge your name to anybody, and I don't. And so you have got to have that trust. I asked Romaine how we can get people to come forward with information about the Freeway Phantom. What you have to do is keep these cases in front of the public. A lot of people don't know about these cases. And there are a lot of people who who lived here years ago when these cases happened. They are aware of them, but they thought they were closed. So you have to constantly remind the public that these cases are open. The person who did it was never apprehended. So we don't know what else that person could have done. Romaine says that with the emergence of the Internet and social media, there just might be new avenues for people to investigate the Freeway Phantom case further. You know, now that everything is computerized, I think if somebody does have some information, they could really put it on the Internet. If they don't want to be involved in it per se, back then we just didn't have, the only thing we had was the newspaper and the TV and the newspaper, which was at the time the biggest circulating one, I think was the Washington Post, you know. Now we we have more, and there's so many different sites, and it takes longer to investigate things now, because I think back then they had over a thousand people who were suspects in the case. They investigated every last one of them, but they could not come to a favorable conclusion. Romaine also says law enforcement is much more capable in today's world than they might have been 50 years ago. If you talk to the FBI, they said at one time they thought there was more than 100 serial killers operating within the United States. I think what's happening today, it's being highlighted more. These cases were happening back in the early 70s, but there was so much else going on and they were not equipped. They didn't even use the term serial murder cases back in the early 70s. You know, we called them pattern cases or else we gave them a name by what was the the outstanding thing that the suspect did. Because of the fact that nowadays you can put a suspect's name in a computer and God knows you can find out everything, all about his family tree and everything. So everything is, is there. But it's important that the police recognize that whoever did a particular case is going to do it again. It's not a one-time thing. That's why the name Freeway Phantom came in, because somebody asked in a press conference, somebody on the Metropolitan Police Department, do you think it's more than one person? 
involved in, the person said, well, we think it's probably more than one person. When the Waters case happened, that's when the note is found. And the note lets you know it was just one person. It was clear to us during our investigation of the Freeway Phantom that police response at the time was impacted to at least some degree by racial bias. I asked Romaine how much she worries about that when it comes to similar cases today. It might still be a problem somewhat, but it can't be hidden nowadays because everybody is looking at the police. Everybody has a camera. They have a microphone. They're paying attention to what is going on. And so you really don't have, not that all the prejudice and racism has, has dissipated. It's still there, but it's not highlighted. And back then, what you saw, a lot of the times officers brought their personal grievances and opinions to the office when they investigated the case. I mean, you know, I read reports in these cases where some officer wrote up that these young girls wore tight shorts. Not one of these girls had on a pair of tight shorts. And if she did, what does that have to do with anything? And then that really upset me because they're blaming these girls for their own abductions and rape and strangulations, you know. But this is how they felt. This is a memo that they, they put out there, you know, that they wore tight jeans. Romaine still hopes that the Freeway Phantom cases can be solved. But she says more people need to know about these cases and somebody needs to step up. If I had the power, I would love to see that these cases were resolved either by someone telling the police or calling the police, calling the newspaper. In fact, get on the Internet and say it. Everybody hides information on the Internet. But, you know, at least impart the information that you have that might be crucial. And maybe you might think it didn't mean anything. But, you know, if you keep it to yourself, we'll never know. Also, that these cases are always kept alive in some manner with PG County Police and with the Metropolitan Police Department and with the FBI. That the files and the evidence not be destroyed, that it be kept forever and ever. And maybe you can't do anything with the evidence, but you know, maybe somebody who's in their 70s, I figure if the Phantom were alive today, he'd probably be in his late 60s or early 70s. Maybe he, he wants to relieve his conscience of what he, what he has done. You don't know, you know? And also, always keep in touch with the victim's families. Because a lot of times, people impart information to them. And they say, well, the police don't really care, so I'm not going to tell them. You know, even in the phantom cases, we had people who were interviewed the night the cases happened. And two years later, they gave up information that they didn't initially give, which was good information. It's a matter of always communicating with people. We're also doing our part in this fight. As a reminder, Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia are matching the $150,000 reward offered by the Metropolitan Police Department. This brings the total reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for these murders to $300,000. If you have information that may lead to the identification of the Freeway Phantom, it's time to speak up. Tips can be provided to MPD or 
Tenderfoot TV at tips at tenderfoot.tv. For the family members of these victims, any hope of discovering the truth is complicated because it's hard to say how they might feel about new details that could emerge. Closure doesn't come easily when you've had a loved one taken away by violence. Here again is Evander Spinks, older sister of Carol Spinks. I mean, for the most part, my family is still together, but it still put a wedge in our family, amongst us. Like me, I hold guilt because I felt like I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And I'm sure my older sister does. Even to this day, I know I'm a lot more stronger than they are, my um, younger siblings. I knew more and I learned more because I wanted to know more. And I wanted to understand it. And I've always been trying to figure out a way to get the hurt off of me. So it made me stronger and more tougher and a harder person because I wanted to know. And you can't be a chicken and you can't be timid if you want to know something because you're going to have to take some hard knocks to get that information. And that's what this is. These are hard knocks. I told um, Yeye today that um, she came to me of a night, two nights ago. And it wasn't in spirit. It wasn't in body form. And it's like out the peripheral view. I could see her in her coffin, but not in her coffin dead, but maybe just laying there. And people were talking about her and as if she wasn't in the room or... How can I explain this? They were talking about her as if she wasn't in the room, but talking to her. And I was responding because I, I remember saying this one thing. Wait a minute. I want to interject on that right there. I said, no, she wasn't like that at all. She was quiet and... And I kind of was looking at her out my side eye. And she was, baby, Carol, she was just there. And this just happened a couple of days ago. And I was saying how I was telling Yeye how good I felt that I, could, I always called it a visit. When my family visited me, I always say I had a visit. <laughs> Here's what Bertha Crockett, sister of Brenda Crockett, told us about how she thinks about her sister's murder. There are other family members that lost their sisters, and they became officers and detectives because they wanted to put the cuffs on the man that killed their family member. But we've had no closure, no resolution. So, I mean, I've done so many podcasts and live TV, and so it's just, I don't know, the gentleman that, that could have done this has to be old, old now, or even deceased. And that's sad, but I don't know. You know, vengeance is mine. I will repay, said the Lord. So that's all you have to live by when you really can't see judgment. After all these years, I don't, I don't know if it's important anymore. I just know that 
if you do wrong, wrong will come back on you. It's God's choice and chance and time. So, you know, if you think you're doing something and getting away with it, you're not. It's not, if I don't ever see what occurred as a resolution or, you know, as closure, I know that God has me and, and every anything around me. So when people do stuff, they have to recognize that you're not going to get away with it. So if you think you have, I, I think God has had something in store for them or whatever the case may be in their future, their present, their past. So if I don't see, I've never, I haven't seen closure in 50 years. So I can't say, you know, I'm, I have to worry about it. And I just hope that, that what's deserved is deserved because I, I don't want to sound bad, but I, I, I feel like if you take a life, you shouldn't have a life. If you do wrong, wrong should not be granted for you to be out here doing wrong forever. And and it's not that, you know, somebody had to come back and take it out on you purposely. Stuff just happens by circumstance. So you just have to be be good in, in everything you do. So, no, I'm not sitting here worrying about whether that person is still around or whatever. I just know that God has had me and I'm just grateful that I'm still here. After Diane Williams was killed, her sister Patricia Williams went on to become a police officer. I did not become a police officer because of my sister's death. I became a police officer because I was taking a class in investigations, and it was during one of those um, classes that the professor put up that the Metropolitan Police Department would be having a uh, test at Belus Senior High School. That's the high school that I went to. I decided to go in and take the test. And um, almost the rest is history. I wound up joining the police department. After Romaine Jenkins retired, there was another detective, Jim Trainer, that I was in a training academy with. And he had gotten or was starting to pick up with the Freeway Phantom investigations from where Romaine Jenkins had left off. One day, we, we just so happened to see each other, you know, years after we had gotten out of the training academy, and he mentioned that uh, to me. And, and so we started talking about the Furry Fest, and he was telling me what he's going to do. And they had gotten a grant. He, he was able to get someone to assist him with reenacting every single case. And I was fortunate enough to ride with them on one of the reenactments that they were doing. It felt like I was back like in 1971. I felt like I was there at the time that it happened. And it, it, it really touched me just to to be a, a part of that and to, to kind of like see what happened and, and what these girls may have felt like or felt when this was going on. It, it, it put me in a whole new different light as to this whole investigation because I was sort of like a part of it. All the other times, I was not a part of the investigation. I remember Romaine Jenkins telling me, Pat, I don't want to uh, show you anything involving your sister. It's too hard to look at. You can't unsee this. And I respected that. So even though we would talk about it, I never saw 
any reports on the investigations, any photographs involving the investigations, any of that. It was always just dialogue talking back and forth about this. And then they would always guard me against telling me or letting me see anything that would upset me. There is no closure. I have, of course, a lot older. There's some things that I don't even remember. I don't know if that's uh, selective amnesia or what, but there'll never um, be any closure. But I have I've also accepted that Diane and the other Freeway Phantom victims' murder will never be found. I, I've already accepted it. And, and I believe in God, and I believe that this individual has to, or individuals have an accounting, uh, and maybe not in this life, but they will. And I've pretty much left that now in their hands, God's hands, excuse me, to deal with them, because I don't believe we will ever know. And I and I can't I can't live a life of you know hating somebody or spending all all my time worrying about when are they going to catch somebody what are they doing you know because in, in Diane's case I I honestly believe that everything has been done that can be done with the exception of a confession. And even if somebody confessed to do it, they'd have to prove it because it's been so long. You'd have to, they would have to have some kind of evidence to prove that they did it. After 50 years, I'm feeling that that individual is no longer with us either. Throughout this podcast, there were a number of goals we were trying to accomplish. First and foremost, we just wanted to tell the stories of these young girls and make their names heard. And again, the six confirmed victims are Carol Spinks, Darlinia Johnson, Brenda Crockett, Nina Moshe Yates, Brenda Woodard, and Diane Williams. There was also Tara Bryant, a seventh unconfirmed victim, and Angela Barnes, who was briefly on the official list of victims. What cannot get lost here is that these young girls were innocent, beloved members of their families and their community, and the impact their murders had on their loved ones was severe It was tragic, and in some cases, insurmountable. It is our hope that they do find some manner of peace. It's also our mission that they someday receive the justice they deserve. And that brings us to the next goal of this podcast. We hope to discover the identity of the Freeway Phantom, and we truly believe it's possible. But we cannot do that alone. What we've done here is lay out the facts, give you as much information as we could find. And now we need the community to step up and share whatever tips they might have. That may be the only way that this 50-year-old case gets resolved. And it just might be the only way that these young girls finally receive justice. Our last goal with this podcast has been to raise awareness of an even bigger, more persistent issue not just in Washington, D.C., but all throughout this country. Missing children from Black and marginalized communities rarely get the attention they need. It's past time that we prioritize cases like Relisha Rudd, both in terms of media attention and police resources. Only then can we start to save these lives and ensure that what happened to Carol, Darlinia, Brenda, Nina Moshe, Brenda Woodard, Diane, and Tara never happens again. I'm Celeste Headley. 
This has been Freeway Phantom. Freeway Phantom is a production of iHeartRadio, Tenderfoot TV, and Black Bar Mitzvah. Our host is Celeste Hidley. The show is written by Trevor Young, Jamie Albright, and Celeste Hidley. Executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio include Matt Frederick and Alex Williams with supervising producer Trevor Young. Executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV include Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay with producers Jamie Albright and Tracy Kaplan. Executive producers on behalf of Black Bar Mitzvah include myself, Jay Ellis, and Aaron Bergman with producer Sidney Foos. Lead researcher is Jamie Albright. Artwork by Mr. Soul 216. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and the Nord Group. Tenderfoot TV and iHeartMedia, as well as Black Bar Mitzvah, have increased the reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the Freeway Phantom murders. The previous reward of up to $150,000 offered by the Metropolitan Police Department has been matched. A new total reward of up to $300,000 is now being offered. If you have any information relating to these unsolved crimes, contact the Metropolitan Police Department at area code 202-727-9099. For more information, please visit freeway-phantom.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks for listening. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reuse hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.